speak in the name of God. Amen. I take as my text this morning John 3.16. It is perhaps the best known verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. This text is the gospel announcement. In a sense, you could say that's all you need. Like, there it is, you know? Perhaps more than any other verse, it summarizes the work and the power of Jesus of Nazareth. And you can find it everywhere. Bumper stickers. I saw it on the side of a barn one time. Football banners. Face paint. Sometimes people don't even put the word John. They just say 316. In some cases, though, it has been twisted. In some conservative circles, the notion became this. All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Pray this particular prayer this one time, and the game is over. The jig is up. You are saved, which means you'll go to heaven when you die. There are so many problems with that model, not least the wrong notion that following Jesus could be boiled down to a one-time conversion rather than a lifetime of discipleship, which comes with cost and right living. But the biggest problem is that it ignores the depth, the swirling mystery of John's gospel. There's so much at play in this passage. So this morning I'd like to explore with you these questions. Why is John 3.16 so powerful? What did it mean to John's original audience? And how could it guide us now through Lent and to the cross? Our story begins with Nicodemus, a religious leader who has clearly taken an ear to Jesus' teaching. Nicodemus has status in Jerusalem. He's like platinum status. As a Pharisee, he can go wherever he wants. If he were in the airport, he would not wait for lines in security. You can imagine him traveling in his long robes, unhindered by lines or soldiers. This man makes a scene when he travels. And he hears that Jesus has just flushed the money changers out of the temple, creating quite a stir. So Jesus calls to task the loan sharks and the payday lenders of his time. And he clearly has angered the temple authorities. Earlier, before this passage, Nicodemus is basically advocating for Jesus to the other Pharisees. But now he comes to Jesus under cover of darkness. Remember that for John, darkness symbolizes disbelief. Not necessarily a bad thing, like it's a beautiful thing to be in the dark, but it is symbolizing disbelief. And so for John, coming to Jesus is the symbol of life. Right? Jesus as the Savior of the world is John's reason for writing his gospel. John also sees interaction with Jesus as the saving moment. So if you talk to Jesus in John's gospel, chances are you had a life-changing moment. Think Nicodemus in this story, or the Samaritan woman at the well, among others. By talking to Jesus, John often shows these people as saved. And that is a really loaded term, which is part of John 3.16. What does John mean by salvation? It's deeper than you might think, especially in light of the way that word gets used today. Renowned scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, 
The work of salvation, in its fullest sense, has three parts. One, it's about whole human beings, not merely souls. Two, it's about the present, not simply the future. And three, salvation is about what God does through us and not merely for and to us. Those are three key points which bring a much deeper sense to what salvation means for John's audience. As John means it, first, we cannot separate our bodies from our souls. We are intrinsically one. Second, that salvation has to do with the here and now, at least as much as the hereafter. One of the greatest criticisms of Christianity writ large is that we're just sort of trying to get people into heaven and forgetting about the necessities of like food and justice and prison and the quality of the air and streets, right? Salvation, as John describes it, absolutely has to do with the day-to-day life of everybody, especially the poor and the marginalized. And finally, that God works through us. Salvation is about our participating in God's work in the world. So now we listen to Jesus and Nicodemus, which follows John's textbook formula, which is sign, dialogue, discourse. John's kind of a mystical writer, right? So when you're trying to like make sense of these like swirling deep passages, like in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, if you find yourself confused, that's on purpose. John was actually writing in code for a, an underground desert community. So if he seems kind of dense to you, as opposed to like Luke, who's all about being in order, he's doing that on purpose. So I'm trying to like unpack the mysticism of it. So Nicodemus starts by naming Jesus' signs, saying, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And then we enter the dialogue about being born from above, which blows Nicodemus' literalistic mind. What do you mean, born from above? Do you climb back into the womb and give it another go? I love John's lampooning of biblical literalism right here. What I just said is not literally what I meant. Jesus is talking in metaphor. Oh, that makes so much more sense. That's how John is doing symbols. That's how metaphors work in the gospel, right? And so when you take a book that starts with the talking snake and think that it might be a science text, you've made a genre mistake. <laughs> it's a metaphor. <laughs> the Greek word anothen could also be translated born again or born anew as if we needed yet another ex-Baptist trigger word this morning. Here it is. What does it mean to be born again or born anew in, God's, in John's gospel? And what did it mean especially to those early readers who, remember, he's writing to an underground desert community almost 100 years after Jesus dies. Marcus Borg writes extensively about this born-again imagery in the early Christian, in the early Christian community in the New Testament. It is a centrally important theme, especially in John. He writes that dying and rising and to be born again are the same root image for the process of personal transformation at the center of Christian life. So when someone says, are you born again, they might mean something different. But what John meant is, have you experienced a personal turning, a personal transformation? To be born again involves death and resurrection. It means dying to an old way of being 
and being born into a new way of being, a way of being and an identity that is centered in the sacred, in spirit, in Jesus Christ, and in God. I love the way Serene Jones describes this personal transformation, this being born again. We must open our eyes, ears, hands, minds, and hearts to receive the truth of God's real, persistent presence, God's grace. You see everything around you as suffused with God's love. You see God's grace everywhere, saturating all existence. This process of awakening to what is already true, but you haven't previously seen it, this is called conversion, a word that literally means to see anew. So that's the depth of what John is talking about when he says to be born again, to be converted, to have your entire worldview changed as if you put on a different set of glasses, to see how specifically that would change your worldview. If you have glasses, try taking them off and putting them back on and seeing how much the world changes. That's the example of seeing anew that John's talking about. Clearly, however, Nicodemus remains perplexed. And so Jesus makes it plain with his closing discourse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's so much to draw forth in this powerful, beautiful passage. First, God's overwhelming feeling toward the world, which in John's gospel is translated from the word cosmos, which means everything. All systems of being, knowing, thinking, doing, everything that is, ever was, and ever shall be is the world. And God's overwhelming feeling towards that is love. This love is the source of God's connection to us and That's why God sends Jesus to the world. Jesus is sent as a response to God's love. Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection put the love of God into the human story, as real as bread and tears. Love is why he came. Love is what he taught. And this is how you will know that we are his disciples if you have love for one another. Third, Jesus' reason for being, as John tells it, is salvation in its deepest sense. Here I don't mean the quick conversion that is often described, but rather abundant life, a life worth living and going home to God. And finally, that Jesus came not to condemn but to save, in John's sense of the word, through his grace. This text is the Christian announcement in some. But we live much more deeply through stories. And I think the best way to summarize this text is this. God loved the world, so love God, love your neighbor, and change the world. Right now, the world is on edge because of the coronavirus. Uh, Basically, a bad bad cold and flu with about a 3.4% mortality rate. But it's spreading really fast. And people are really anxious all over the world, especially in places like Italy and Europe and China, even in the western part of the United States, even in New York. There's a sense of fear. So imagine how people felt in Memphis in 1878 when the yellow fever was coming with a much 
higher mortality rate. Basically, you die from fevers when you, have, when you get dehydrated, right? But they didn't have ways to rehydrate people. They didn't have IV fluids. So if you got the yellow fever, there was a really good chance you were going to die. And at that point, they weren't even sure how it spread, except that if you were around somebody who had the yellow fever, there was a really good chance you were going to get it too. So everybody who could, basically everybody who had money, left Memphis, which meant the people who didn't leave Memphis were poor folks. They were basically former slaves and families of enslaved people. They were workers. They were the lower class. And this group of people led by Sister Constance, who actually went to the cathedral in Memphis, decided they were going to stay in the city for the city. They knew the cost. They knew the risk. But they felt called to this notion of God's love for the world that said, we're going to stay here and care for these people, come what may. So Constance and three other nuns and two Episcopal priests stayed and cared, five people stayed and cared for anybody who came to them with the fever. Most of the people who came to them died, and indeed Constance and her three nun companions and her two clergy companions all contracted the yellow fever, and they all died serving the city that God so loved. And I raise this story to name, in some ways, the cost of discipleship, you know? I really gristle at the way Christianity is often presented in the public sphere as, a, as an easy thing, you know, as a um, political tool, a way to get folks to gin up votes or, you know, all the ways it can get manipulated. But at its core, the gospel announcement is that God so loved the world that God sent Jesus into the world to show us how to love the world. Not that the world would be judged or condemned, but rather that the world would be saved, which is to say that Jesus shows us how to live the good life, abundant life, a life of love. I have said these things to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.